because I know that a, a lot of us have certain types of topics that we like enjoying once it comes to reading. There it goes, finally. Uh, we'd like reading a little bit more than others. And so I'm going to try to throw a couple of books out each time that we meet. Uh, one that I'm currently working through, I started it, whatever, seven, eight years ago in graduate school, and I never got to finish it. Um, and I'm working back through When Helping Hurts. This is an exceptional book. This is actually probably one of the most uh, resource books for underprivileged and um, economically kind of hurting communities. So Brian Fickert is pretty much the main name behind this. Uh, he's, a lot of his research is played into that, and of course Steve Corbett is in there as well. And the subtitle sort of gives you the background of what they're trying to address, is how to alleviate poverty without hurting the poor and yourself. Um, and so, as the title lays out, when helping hurts, sometimes the help that we provide to our communities actually ends up hurting not only them, but hurting us as well. Um, and so they're trying to bring out some practical wisdom that they have. One of them works uh, within Memphis, and one of them works within Chattanooga. So they understand uh, a lot of structures of what happens economically in Tennessee. The other one, uh, for those of you who uh, like reading like political things, uh, this is Letter to an American Christian. This is by uh, Bruce Ashford. Actually, uh, was an editor for him for a couple of years, and he is fantastic. Great thinker, very thoughtful. And if you want to sort of read what's happening in our culture right now politically from a Christian point of view, that is the go to book that I throw out. Not difficult, very. If you don't know like, all the different political words like liberalism and socialism, he gives you very basic understandings and goes into that. Conservatism and the like. So I'll try to do that every week. I'll try to throw out a couple books that might uh, grab your attention and look at it a little bit more deeply. Alright, so we're going to be in week three in our Ezra and Nehemiah book this week. You might think, gosh, we've been going for like four or five weeks, and now we're only really in week three. <laughs> yes, we have. So we have taken time, for those who weren't here uh, last week, we took time to really navigate what the scriptures have to say about holiness. Really from the beginning all the way through into the New Testament. And so what we tried to bring out is that uh, one of the major themes within Ezra and Nehemiah is holiness. And those who were here the week before that, or the time that we met before that, we looked at the temple, why the temple was so important. And so we looked at laying out the temple from Genesis all the way through the Old Testament 
and even in the New Testament. We're not going to do that tonight. We're not going to look at a big view, a long view of, of Old Testament, New Testament picture of a specific theme. What I'm going to do tonight is pretty much walk through and uh, ask questions, get you to engage based off of week three itself. And we're going to hit high points. Um, what I saw is high points and then also uh, sort of look at some uh, the gospel glimpses, the, uh, the, the terms that they try to break down a little bit more on 23 and 24, and then see what you had to say about uh, Ezra 3 and 4 <coughs> towards the end. All right. Any questions on that before we get rolling? All right, I'm going to read the, the place of the passage for those who might not have been able to do this or not known exactly where we were. I'm going to give us some background before we jump in. Uh, place of the passage on page 19, it says this, With their journey completed, this is the Israelites coming back into Jerusalem, the returned exiles focused immediately on the Jerusalem temple in chapters 3 and 4. The first task of rebuilding the altar and the foundation. That's chapter 3. This shows obedient worship and ensuing rejoicing of God's people. Here's chapter 4. The challenge from adversaries shows the nature and methods of those who oppose the Lord and His people, often with temporary success. <coughs> and so the big picture is it's laying out uh, for chapters 3 and 4 is uh, the priority of worship that's one of the main reasons why I took time to address the temple, why it's so important for the worship of God's people, and then holiness. How you can even approach God in the first place because of uh, the fact that you have been claimed and deemed holy. So the priority of worship among God's people as they celebrate His steadfast love, we're going to look at that in a little bit more depth, uh, from generation to generation. Yet at this point of rejoicing, both the weeping of the elders and the opposition of enemies remind us that God's redemptive plan is not yet complete. So we had a little bit of a chunk of reading. Uh, last week was a little bit smaller amount of reading. What you're going to see with this study, though, it is going to have you pouring all over, left and right through the scriptures. It's going to have you going... Uh, to pieces of scripture before Ezra 3 and 4. It's going to have you going beyond that. And this is trying to get you to situate what is happening within the big picture of things. So let's look at that first question on page 20. Briefly comment on the phrases in verses 1 through size, uh, 7 the, that reveal the guide and the motivation for the people's activity. So I want you to key in on verses 1 through 3 of chapter 3. Somebody read those for me, please. When the seventh month, seventh month arrived and the Israelites were in their towns, the people gathered as one in Jerusalem. Jeshua, son of uh, Zozadak, and his brothers, the priests, along with Zerubbabel, yep. son of... Shealtiel. Shealtiel, okay. And his brothers began to build the altar of Israel's God in order to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Through verse 3? Yeah, through. They set up the altar on its foundation and offered burnt offerings for the morning and evening <coughs> to the Lord, even though they feared the surrounding peoples. 
Good. All right, so let's look at verses 1 and 2. The children of Israel, notice what month that they're doing this. Seventh month. This should key us in as very important language because it's in the seventh month that they have one of their major uh, sacrifices, one of their major days uh, within their calendar, and that's the Day of Atonement. We talked about this last week. Uh, so this is the day that they can, if there were any sins that were unrepented of, so to speak, or if the Gentiles, as in the non-Jews, had sinned at any point in their life, which uh, the Jews knew, of course, that they did, it would have contaminated the altar place, the Holy of Holies. And so in the seventh month, and specifically on the tenth day of the seventh month, they would have uh, the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And they would uh, have this priest that would go in and he would actually slaughter his uh, lamb, his goat, and he would spread blood all over the altar. And then the Holy of Holies. And then into a little bit of the outer space of the worship there. And then beyond that, on the people, in order to represent that God's place is being sanctified, being made holy. And so at this point, they are understanding that their sins are being atoned for. The ones that are intentional and the ones that are unintentional. And so for the fact that the seventh month is mentioned in verse uh, 1 of chapter 3, it's showing that they're trying their best to work towards where their tone, uh, sins can be atoned for. Because it is understood in this day and time, if you didn't have the Day of Atonement, your sins couldn't be completely forgiven. Does that make sense? So keep that in the back of your head. That if they have no altar, if they have no Holy of Holies set up, if they have no Levite priesthood, like high priest, their sins cannot be forgiven in their entirety. So the reason you then see in verses 2, yes, in verse 2, what do they build? What's their intention in building? Altar, yes. And then what else are they trying to move beyond that? Altar to offer burnt offerings. Yes, this is Leviticus 1, where they realize that they need to have their sins atoned for. They need to be able to approach God in holiness. They need to be able to worship Him rightly so that He can approach them rightly as well. So that's the point of communion, of coming together between people and God and God and people. So what does the Scripture say, though? How does it describe this people in verse 1? It's like 1B. I know there's not a B in here, but the second part of verse 1. As one man. Let's think through this metaphor. As one man. What do we mean by this? We use language sort of like this every once in a while. Think of weddings. What is it that is happening within a wedding itself? Joining two people as one. Joining two people as one. So you have, again, this type of communion language, this fellowship language that is right here in the midst of them rebuilding the altar and the foundation of the temple itself. So this is actually echoing Genesis language and saying, when, in other words, we would use something, uh, language like this, uh, they, they had one mind. 
In other words, all of these people had one goal together and they were all striving towards that one goal together. So that's sort of what it's getting at on the first question comment uh, for verses one through seven that reveal the, the guide and the motivation. Motivation here is that they must lay this temple foundation. They must put the altar down so that they can be reunited with this holy God because they realize they have been brought back to this place of, of, of promise. It's now the fact that they need to worship him brightly because of the work he's done on their behalf. Any other comments on that? For verse, or the first question? It's okay if not. All right, turn to Hebrews 10. That's New Testament. It's towards the back. It's going to be after all of Paul's writings. It's after 2 Timothy and Titus. And then it's going to jump to Philemon and then to Hebrews. Hebrews 10. Uh, somebody read verses 1 through 7 for me. The law is only a shadow of good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, <clears throat> would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once, once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings. You were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. All right, thanks. Somebody give me sort of the, the nugget. What is happening? He doesn't want burnt offerings. Why exactly? I mean, he did. Okay, he did at one point, but why not now? Because now they're not necessary. He's, he's giving it for us through him. He is the offering. All right, there you go. So one of the things that we need to keep in mind as Christians, as PJ's bringing out, is that at one point they they are desirable. They are good. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there. But at the same time, we need to have that long view of why he had the bull and the offerings, the other types of offerings that you find in Leviticus 1 through, 1 through 7 and Leviticus 16. is because that first verse that Blake read for us, the law was but a shadow of the good things to come. Now, when we think of, as George has sun in his face, what is behind him back there? Uh, shadow. shadow. Is the shadow George? Is that George back there? No. Or is that George? That's George, right? This is George, the reality. That's not George back there, the shadow. The shadow is only pointing to George, the real person. 
same thing once it comes to what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that all of the bulls, the offerings, yes, they're great, but they were only pointing to the true sacrifice, the real sacrifice that was about to happen. So the shadow, although it's sort of real, yes, we won't deny our shadow, but it points back to the real thing that it is that's casting the shadow in the, play, in the first place. And so this author of Hebrews is trying to tell us, yes, sacrifice and offerings you have not desired. In other words, now. You don't desire them now. Because you have prepared this specific body, namely the body of Jesus, so that he can be the true pleasurable offering on behalf of all the sins of the world. Now, go ahead. Verse 10 comes. Hey, see, you're always ahead of me on this. Read verses 8 through 10. Uh, <laughs> first he says, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire. Know where you pleased with them. Though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that, we will have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There you go. So as George is pointing out, verse 10, yes, ver uh, chapter 10 as a whole is a very big, thick chapter. There's tons of things going on. But if you want sort of a nugget of what chapter 10 is about, look at verse 10. And in fact, you have the author of Hebrews bringing all this stuff out in verses 1 through 7. And then he pauses for a second and says, in verses 8 through 10, he gives his commentary on what verses 1 through 7 is all about. But it lands ultimately with verse 10. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ himself. All of that leans towards this Jesus. All of this points to this person Jesus, the ultimate and once and for all sacrifice. <coughs> Alright, any comments on that? On Hebrews 10? Do you see the big picture that's happening though? In Ezra 3 and 4, the sacrifices that are trying to be reestablished, the altar and the foundation being built, and how there's this longing for the people of God to be back in perfect communion with their father. But there has to be, according to Hebrews, a sacrifice day in and day out. If Jesus never came, it would have to be the sacrifice day in and day out. But since he did come, he's the once and for all. All right, um, let's go to page 21. I'm gonna pull a couple of things out here. Uh, we're going to move into the building of, or I should say the rebuilding of the temple foundation. Uh, so back to Ezra 3. And somebody read verses 8 through 13 for me, please. Now in the second year after they are coming to the house of God in Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of CLPO. I gave you the worst one, I'm sorry. Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak. Jehozadak. They were getting together with the rest of their kingdom, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity, 
They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. Uh, to verse 10. I'm sorry, verse 13. Jeshua, who his son and his brother, and Cadmiel. Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph. Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang, responsibly praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his for he steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' house, houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of his house being laid. Though many shouted along for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard all the way. All right, thank you. All right, notice there's sort of two types of celebration happening here. If you look at verse 8 to 11, what is the type of celebration happening? 8 through 11. It's joy because they're rebuilding the temple. Right. There's Thanksgiving. A, yeah, Thanksgiving, uh, joy. What else do you see and feel in that, in that moment? Yeah, praise and excitement. I mean, they're breaking out the symbols. You know it's crazy when they're breaking out symbols. They're having a rock concert, essentially, because of something is happening that they didn't ever expect would happen. And that is the fact that one, the altar is being rebuilt and the foundation has been laid. In other words, they realize that things are happening so quickly that maybe the structures beyond the foundation of the altar are going to be coming up quicker as well. They are seeing right before their very eyes the rebuilding of the temple and the promises of God coming true. Now look at verses 12 and 13. What is the response there? Sadness. Not really sadness, but... I think they were... They knew what had been before. And now they... It's coming again. How do you know They've that? They've already been there. How do you know that? Because of the tears. Yeah. The old men, right? Mm -hmm. It says in verse 12, the old men who had seen the first house. These are the, the older generation, the elder generation who had been in Israel, who had been in Jerusalem, had seen the old house before it was completely torn down by Assyria and Babylonia. And they were taken out of this country and kept in this country. And now they're brought back in and they see the remains of what's left. It's being cleared out and rebuilt. And here are these, this older generation, men and women, weeping because they never expected this rebuilding to happen. And so, yes, you have two types of celebration. 
probably, we can probably infer from the text, sort of guess from the text, that it's the younger generation that is joyful and happy and the ones that are celebrating in the street essentially over what is going on. And it's probably the older generation that is weeping because of, the, yeah, they're joyful, but at the same time, it's unexpected. Hey, the temple they're building right now, is it Solomon's temple or is it different one? Is you'll read throughout Ezra as a whole, they're trying to keep as tight to the blueprint of Solomon's okay. temple as they can. Okay. Yeah, as sense. tight as they can. My little note here in my Bible says that um, some of the old people compared their building project with the memories of the former Yeah, it'll be Solomon's temple. Uh, then this temple will go through. Uh, another sort of bashing down and tearing apart by the Greeks a couple hundred years after this. And then eventually the Romans tear it down in AD 70. Um, and then it's the way that it was laid in AD 70 is the condition that is still in. <coughs> unchanged. Pieces taken away, but pretty much unchanged. 2,000 years. Um, Look down at the third point, the third question right before repeated opposition on page 21, where it says, think of, let's look at this one, think of worship celebrations today as followers of the risen Christ. Compare and contrast the ways in which we rejoice and yet still weep. I love that, how we rejoice and yet still weep. How can the Old Testament scene here that's happening encourage and exhort us as New Testament believers? In other words, how, is it, how does it give us a picture of how we can weep and also at the same time rejoice? I'm just thinking of Hickory Grove Church. We've been through ups and downs. Right now with our younger generation, with y'all, it's back to the point that it was when Shay and I were your age and we were bringing our children up here. It's repeating itself. And it's, to us, it's, it is, I don't know, I know, to, to kind of make the contrast with the, with the text, it is a rejoicing time. It also makes us look back on the times when and what's gone on in between. It's kind of like it's been torn down and now it's being rebuilt. Oh, no, yeah. Go ahead and say it, Blake. Say it, Blake. I just said, welcome to the reason why we're doing this study. Yeah. If we haven't, if you haven't, I've tried to lay back as long as I can, and I was trying to do it even longer. Uh, but I think you are all catching clues from this. This is one of the very reasons why we're doing this study, is that we see God rebuilding in the midst of us something that we never expected. And I don't know this. Y'all know this. But I get a little story here and there where I can say, man, look at what Christ is doing in the midst of us. What he's doing through y'all, what he's doing through us, and what he's doing through us as a whole, as a church. We never expected it. We hope for it, right? But we never expected it to see the kind of things that are stirring up in our church. And so, yes, we need to be able to see, I think what the text is bringing out is that it wasn't just an elder generation weeping with joy. It's also the younger generation that is joyous and celebrating what God is doing in their midst. 
And so I want us, if we can, continue to come back to that every single Sunday night and say, where is Hickory Grove in these pages? Because we're in there. Not literally, you're not going to find the words Hickory Grove, but I think you can see that God is working in the midst of this people and He's continuing to do His work in the midst of us as well. No doubt. Anybody else? If not, we can move on. We have about 12 minutes. I think it's easy to leave. 13 minutes. As far as, as being happy in worship, uh, you know, you, you, your heart is broken for what Christ did for you on, on the cross and the sacrifices that He made for you. And yet you're so happy that He actually did that you have a chance to have everlasting life. And you have your children have that chance. And you know, it's I mean you're brokenhearted for what he went through for us. And you weep for that, but you're also overjoyed that he actually did it. That's that's just one way that we weep and we rejoice at the same time. Yeah. Um and we need to keep those two in tension. You know, see the what we call bitter sweetness today. The bitterness of the fact that Christ died for us, but the sweetness of salvation on the other end of it. Uh, the churches used this word Felix Culpa for about 1,500 years. This Latin term that means a happy sin, essentially. In other words, uh, how joyous it is to taste salvation even though we're sinners, even though that sin abounds, but how sweet is the flavor of, of salvation? Knowing that we're still broken, but we can keep going back to Him for that happiness and that joy. All right, let's look at uh, transition into chapter four. <clears throat> I would love for us to leave on a happy note, at least something to take away. So I'm going to try my best to make sure that we do not get caught up in verse. Uh, 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 verses 1 through 24 of chapter 4 because they're kind of sad and depressing because you have this high moment of chapter 3 and then here, lo and behold, here comes some accusers and um, some people that are trying to disturb the good work that's happening. So I'm going to read a few parts of it. Uh, I think you can get a glimpse at what is going to happen beyond this. So looking at verse 1 of chapter 4. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, so this is the places, don't think of specific people, uh, even though they were, these are the clans now of, of Israel. Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel. They approached Zerubbabel and the, hand, and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you. For we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esar Haddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's house in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in a building of a house to our God. But we alone will build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. And so right after this, some disturbance is happening. Um, first, Judah and Benjamin, these clans, 
actually send a letter to the now king of Persia, Artaxerxes, about what is happening. And they're trying to say, you need to step in because what is going on is that they're rebuilding this temple. And what you need to know is that they understand that Yahweh, their God, is king, which means when they rebuild this temple, you're no longer king. Their king is higher. And then after that, you have the king responding back, or Taxerxes responding with another letter uh, in verses 17 up to about verse 22, if I'm not mistaken. <clears throat> the king sends a letter back to these people and says, here's the court order, so to speak. You have to stop. You need to cease your work. There's no greater king above me in Persia. We are the ones who have dictated what is going to happen, what is not going to happen. You need to cease. All right? So that's essentially what happens. The king of, um, sorry, the copy of the king of Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahum. This is verse 23. And Shimshai, the scribe, and the associates, they went in haste to Jews in Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius king of Persia. So there's a period where there's no work being done. So there's a high point in chapter 3 and a very low point in chapter 4. And it has a lot to do with this opposition that takes place. So if you look at, uh, on pages 21, it gives you a timeline, which I'm thankful that they put this in here. And uh, page 22, what we don't realize is that there are many years that pass here within chapter 4 as a whole. So uh, as the writer points out, the returned exiles are coming back under Zerubbabel around 538 B.C., Remember, we're counting down at this point. Then it jumps forward to the oppression by Hazuerus uh, or Xerxes the uh, first at 486. So we've jumped from 538 to 486. So we're talking 40-ish years. Um, and then you go to Ezra 4 verses 7 through 23. It jumps again to 464. So we're again moving beyond that timeline. And then in verse 24, it picks up where it left off in verse 5 where the reign of Cyrus, the later king of Darius, the second year, so 520. So there's a lot of movement happening in time. But overall, there's between verse 5 and uh, verse 24, there's about 20 years difference. So think, work has slowed and then completely stopped in this time. So what is the probably the mindset, if we could guess, what, is, what are they thinking at this point? They're never going to get it done. They're discouraged. They don't want to have a name. That's hard. You should keep working on something. You had to stop. 20 years goes by. Yeah. Discouraging. You got excited about something coming yeah. up. It's going to be hard to get that excitement back yeah. after that long of a time. Yeah. What is their... If... They're understanding that God's promises are coming true right before their eyes. The altar has been uh, relayed and the foundation is being relayed. 
and then they come to a stop, what are they probably thinking about what God is doing? Think of it like that. What do they think? Either testing them or abandoning them again. All right. Now, have you ever been there? Oh yeah, just think, just think if you're at something at work and, and they get you really excited about something and, and uh, I never have that <laughs> Well, it does in my room. Just say they're, they're talking about building a new corporate office building when mm. you're 45 years old and you're so completely excited about it and then it takes them 20 years to do it and you're 65 and you're retiring by the time it's done. And it's and done. And it's over. So. All right. Other examples? Just don't retire. George always plays our devil's advocate. <laughs> What's the other mindset? What other examples of this mindset that you've seen in your own life? That's a good one. Well, you've seen so much goodness happening right in front of you. And you feel like God leaves. He is abandoned. We felt that. Yeah. And it's greatly discouraging. You think, what have we done? Makes you think that, I, I know I've had thoughts of this before, that if things don't change, we're going to have to close the doors because we can't continue like we are. But we just had to trust <clears throat> that he was working, and yeah. he was. But, well, it was very discouraging. You lost a pastor, and it takes you forever to find a pastor. Right. You know, it's right. like, why not ever, not ever going to give us, you know, that person to be a leader again? And he's just using his time to send us the right person. Mm-hmm. Which is what you don't realize. What's that? But you just don't give up. Yeah. And it's almost human of us, I think, for when we have so much goodness happening in front of us, and then we see it slowing or stopping as a whole, and we, what do we typically try to do? We try to fill in the work ourselves and do it ourselves and say, I can make this happen without God in the, in the equation. What we're hoping beyond chapter four is that they don't do this. It might, it might not. I'm trying to linger, let it linger for you. Um, but it's very human response of us to say, what? we've waited long enough we can't wait on you any longer God we want to make sure this happens now you're just going to have to get along with our project and our plans what I hope we can uh, continue working throughout uh, as, as Ezra moves along and we move along with Ezra uh, and Nehemiah is that key verse that sort of stuck right in there I don't know how it's laid out in your Bible but it's verse 11 Mine actually takes a completely new tab. Can you see it right there? Mm-hmm. I don't know how it's spaced off in yours. Verse 11. It's like two bit of chapter. Yeah. chapter 4. I'm not on another page, though. I don't know. I'm not saying. It starts with a parenthesis. It is a copy of the letter. Mine completely turns it into letters. Yeah. Yeah. What is so, and, and this is a translator's 
This is where a translator, when he or she is reading this and they're trying to figure out, well, one, they've translated, but two, giving an emphasis to that particular verse. And it's exactly this, for he is good. I'm sorry, three. I'm, I'm looking at three. Sorry, I, I've been saying four. Chapter three? Yeah, chapter three, verse 11. I apologize. Chapter three, verse 11. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. This is actually a snippet from Exodus 34, 6. This is, you know, if we had sort of a, a central teaching or hymn or saying within our church, let's say Jesus is Lord, if that's the central teaching of what we understand, this would have been Israel's central teaching. His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. Exodus 34, 6 was this central teaching. So the fact that one, that they say it, is expressing they're going back and understanding that same God who rescued us in Exodus from Pharaoh and oppression and brought us out of a land of oppression and slavery and into a land of freedom, here he is again. He's continually doing his work. He's bringing us out of land of slavery, Persia, or Babylon, through Persia, and then into Israel. His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. This is where I want us to end. That can, it's not like, oh yeah, that's the Old Testament that can't be translated to us in, as New Testament people. This is the same God, guys. This is the same God who continues to do His work in the midst of us. And so if we had sort of the central teaching that, is, that we catch our eyes towards and we wrap our entire lives around, it would be that one. It is God's steadfast love. It is His pursuing passion, would be another translation. He is pursuing a people. And it is targeted towards a people the church, so that he can then display his own steadfast love, his passionate love through a people as well. So verse 11 of chapter 3 is very powerful. We read over it quickly, but it's very powerful. And they will continue to come back to that. It's a high moment again in chapter 3, verse uh, chapter 4. They're trying to figure out where his steadfast love is in this moment. Because things have stopped. Things have ceased. Now what will happen next? Right? Alright, any other comments? Any other observations? I'll, I'll tell you guys quickly about something real life. That, that I mean, I just was looking at this the whole time. I was kind of comparing it to Chelsea and I's life. You know, just like these, just to compare it to every day, you know, we we were going along, we had a great little family, everything was great. Uh, we had Ross and we had Bo, and then we found out that we were pregnant again, and uh, you know, and on top of that, we were going to have a barrel. Everything was great, we were jumping for joy, we were praising, and then all of a sudden that got taken away. And... It was a dark, dark period where we didn't feel like anything was, and I didn't, 
feel like that was ever going to be the same again or, or you know, we, we didn't feel like that it was ever going to be good again or, you know, I mean, we had, I had a hard time praying during that time period. Uh, and then we just decided we were just going to stick with God. This is God's plan. We were going to stick with it. We were going to ride it out as long as we had to. Uh, and we didn't make any plans. We didn't, we didn't try. We didn't do anything. Uh, <clears throat> then, lo and behold, three years later, we get the news of of Reed, you know. And it's all of a sudden the same God that that puts you through that trial brings you out, you know, on the other side. And looking back on it, it's it's a lot. It's the same story, just on a personal level, yeah. you know. And it's I mean, it's it's crazy how you're you're put through trials, and you feel like you know, Job has nothing on me, you know, and then all of a sudden, the same God that you know puts you through that trial blesses you beyond measure and brings you out of it. Now that doesn't mean that you forget those trials, yeah, because we would never forget. Them. Oh yeah, definitely read. You are doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing, but reading Ezra and Nehemiah through a personal level, because um, this is uh, not only the God who sees you through death and pain, <clears throat> but the God who also brings you through life uh, and brings about life in the midst of that death and pain. Um, yeah. Excellent job. Y'all could have taught that for me. Thanks. <laughs> and yeah, keep sharing those stories because I know that the more we open up about what Ezra Nehemiah is teaching us, I think the tighter will grow. I know we're already close knit, but I want us to grow even tighter through these studies. So bring them about. Please do. All right, anybody else? All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again for this evening where we can gather together and be reminded of your goodness, your steadfast love, your passion.
towards a people that we're undeserving. And it's through sheer grace that you bring us together that we are able to experience that love through your Son. And it is such a beautiful moment that we get to hear uh, stories of what Ezra Nehemiah is reminding us of in our own lives and being able to share it and be able to see that here you are, even in our midst, continuing your work. Even though our stories don't line up exactly the same, we have unique families and we're going through different uh, experiences, but yet at the same time we see that you're the same God who is delivering us from bondages of brokenness and delivering us into the likeness of your Son. And so may we continue to rest in your steadfast love. May we continue to rest in the goodness of your Son. And so that we can see the sweetness and we can taste the sweetness of that salvation that we have experienced. And may we continue to feast on that, that salvation. And so Lord, may you now uh, carry us into our homes that we can express the goodness of, of who your Son is to our children, uh, to our parents, to each other, and beyond. And so, Lord, we ask for these things in your name. Amen.